Okay, before we dive into the lesson, I, I would like to say something to you that I don't get to say to you enough, and I, and, I, and I should more, and that is I really appreciate how well you always listen and follow along, not just in classes, but in sermons. Uh, I think I can speak for Brother Brian and, and even Brother Jonathan and any brother who stands up to, to preach that this is a congregation that listens very well. And I really, really appreciate it. I always appreciate you just listening and just being so zealous about the Word of God. That is a true blessing, and I appreciate it so much. This morning, we're going to continue our studies in Revelation. Take out your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 5, please. Revelation 5, as you turn to Revelation 5, let's just kind of uh, quickly set the scene or just rehearse where we are. We've done Revelation 1. We've seen the risen, victorious Savior. We read about how John has seen him. We saw the guidepost, the road signs to help us properly uh, interpret the book and get good understanding. We did several lessons on the, on the seven churches of Asia and what Jesus had to say to the seven churches. Last time we got a glimpse of heaven. We got to read about what John saw as he was given access behind the curtain. He was able to see God the Father on his throne, being worshipped, being praised. And now we're going to study Revelation 5. And so since it's not a very long chapter, how about we just read it? Let's read the Word of God. This is after John is able to see the Father God in heaven being worshipped and praised. In Revelation 5 and verse 1, John says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. He says, I saw on the right hand of him, in the right hand of God, the Father, who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the, under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb as if slain, having seven horns. Remember, none of this is literal here. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them are heard saying to him who sits on the throne 
And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. So just ponder on that for just a moment or two. We're not obviously going to be able to get all of Revelation 5 in this morning. There's a lot going on there. We're going to try to study a lot of it, or at least maybe half of the chapter today and then the other half on Wednesday. As we begin this, I just want to say that in Revelation 5, the main thing to understand that in this, that is that in this chapter, the main question of the book is addressed. The main question of the book of Revelation is addressed in this chapter. What is that question? Well, that question is, who's going to win this war? Who's going to win it? Who's going to win this war taking place between the kingdom of God and the Roman Empire? Who's going to win this war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men? Right now, it does not look like God is winning. It does not look like the kingdom of God is prevailing. On the earth, as far as the earth's perspective goes, the people of God are getting beat down. They are getting trampled. It looks like this empire is going to wipe out Christianity. That's what it looks like from earth's perspective. But remember, John is not, is not being given earth's perspective. On this occasion, now he's being given what? heaven's perspective. He's being able to see behind the curtain. And so this chapter answers the question of who is going to win. John needs to know this. The people of God need to know this. Otherwise, they might as well just quit and give up. And so let's go through this in verse 1. In verse 1, and I'll be asking for just a little participation as we go through this. In verse 1, God is on his throne, and there's something in his right hand. God is on the throne. Something is in his right hand. What is in his right hand, according to the text in verse 1? A scroll. There's a scroll in his hand. There is a book in his hand. Why is this book so important? Well, this book is important. This book with seven seals. You see that? It's got seven seals. And this book with seven seals is introduced and it is important because with it, inside of the book, is the outcome. It is, the, it is the DVR version of the War of Revelation. You know, sometimes, and I'm a big football fan, sometimes I'll DVR a game. Maybe I'm in, you know, I'm at services and I, I can't see the whole game. But me being so impatient, I can't usually wait to watch the DVR to see who's going to win. I got to go ahead and look at my phone and look at the score. Then I'll go back and watch the DVR version later, already knowing what the outcome is. You ever done that before? You already knew what the score was? You already knew if your team won or lost, but you go back and watch it anyway. But when you go back and watch it, you're watching it a little differently, especially if you know your team won, right? That's what Revelation is. Revelation is the DVR version of, of the war. It's telling you exactly who's going to win so the Christians can know ahead of time. They're going to already know this whether or not God is going to win. This scroll contains the outcome. This scroll with the seven seals contains the outcome to this battle. God's people are going to know ahead of time. And that is designed to motivate them to stay with God. So this book reveals what's going to happen to the kingdom of God. In verse 2, look at verse 2. After seeing God on the throne with a a book with seven seals in his right hand, who does he see? Who does he see next? He sees a what? 
I like how you made sure you said strong angel. This is not just an angel here, and angels are strong enough, right? I mean, we can read about in the Old Testament in Isaiah 37, a time when one angel, if you remember, wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Angels, I mean, within themselves are strong, but this one is really emphasized as being a strong angel. This is a, an angel that appears to be even stronger than most. So he sees a strong angel. And what does he ask? What does the strong angel ask? The strong angel asks a question. What does he ask? Can anybody open this book? Can anybody break these seals and reveal the outcome to the battle? That's what the strong angel wants to know. The answer to the question is given in verse number three. According to verse three, what is the answer to the question? Nobody's found to do it. That's bad. If nobody can break the seals to the book, that means God's people are going to lose. No, this is not good. Nobody can open this book that is supposed to reveal the fact that God's people are supposed to win. He says no one in heaven. No one on earth. No one under the earth. That's just all emphasizing how there's, like you said, nobody. Nobody can do it. At least right now. Nobody can open the book. So what does this cause John to do? Do you think John knows what this means? What does this cause John to do when he realizes that nobody can open the book? He breaks down. This is bad. God's, God's kingdom's going to lose. No one's found to open it and break the seals. This causes John to weep. John knows how significant this is. He knows that if no one can break this book and reveal the outcome, that means God's kingdom is going to prevail and we're wasting our time as Christians. The kingdom of men will prevail. And so he's crying. But what does one of the elders in heaven say to John in his sadness? What does he say? Yes, sir. Yes. And he served his entire life for a purpose and a cause. He's dedicated his entire life to this. And now all of a sudden he sees this. And it's almost, if I was in his, that's like everything he's done his entire life is for nothing. Yeah. And, and so that, to me, really allows me to give the, um, possibly the emotion that John felt at that point. You know, point well taken, Lance. Lance was saying that it's important to realize that at this point, especially if we take the late date, that John is an old man, maybe in his 80s or some say even maybe 90s. And he's devoted his whole life to the cause of the gospel. Remember, he was with Jesus for three years in his ministry. He's gone through many things. He's in exile right now in Patmos. And if God's cause will not prevail, you feel like you've wasted, in John's case, two-thirds of your life at least, right? And, and, and so you can see how this emotion, it helps you get a good feel of why all of this negative emotion is overtaking him right now. That's, that's a good point. And so John is very, very distraught. So what does one of the elders in heaven say to him in his time of sadness? Well, there are two things. One of the elders speaks in heaven. The first one was, don't weep, don't cry. Don't cry. You're crying, you don't need to cry. Why? Secondly, there is somebody who can do this. 
There's somebody who can do it. There is somebody qualified to do this who can break these seals. Who's that person? Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. Only Jesus can break the seals. Only he can open the book. In fact, and some of you have already started stating it, Jesus is described in some powerful ways, some powerful ways in this section. His name, he's not called Jesus here, but we know it's Jesus, don't we? We know it's him, right? We know it because of the description. So let me kind of work backwards here a little bit. I think it's in, we start with verse 6. Verse 6, Jesus is called the Lamb. The Lamb enters into the picture here. He enters the story and he's the only one worthy to open the seals. He's the only one able to do it. Now, we focus on Jesus being the lamb quite a bit, and rightfully so. I mean, when we take the Lord's Supper, that's what it's all about. It's about remembering the lamb, what the lamb did. So someone tell me very quickly, what is the significance of Jesus being called a lamb? What is the significance of that? Anybody know? Raise your hand. Does anybody know the significance of him being the lamb? Brother Ryan, go right ahead, sir, and then Gary after that. He's the only one who could take away the sins of the earth. Very good answer. Brother Gary, you had something, sir. He was the sacrifice that John would have understood. Both of y'all's answers right on the money. When you... Root of David. The, the root of David. The, these references from the Old Testament, the promises made, and how significant those, those promises are now. Absolutely, absolutely. So, with the lamb, the language of the lamb, like both of you were saying, is the idea of sacrifice. The Jews who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, familiar with the Old Testament sacrifice system knew that lambs were used for what? Sacrifices. John 1.29. John 1.29. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, verse 7, going back to the prophet Isaiah, 700 years prior to the coming of Jesus, he describes Jesus as being a lamb who before his shears would be silent. The idea of the Messiah would be a sacrificial lamb. He would be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Brother Don, yes, sir. Specifically, he is our Passover. Yes. Not only for the firstborn, but for all of mankind. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Don, because we, we were familiar with the fact that the Israelites observed the Passover meal for several hundred years to commemorate when the destroyer, passed over them as they were getting out of Egypt or prior to them being sent out of Egypt. And so often people might think that the Lord's Supper is our Passover meal. It is not. Our Passover, according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, is Jesus, through Jesus' spiritual death, passes over us because he is the lamb. Absolutely. So Jesus was the sacrificial lamb for our sins. It is because of his sacrifice at Calvary, they were able to even be here this morning with hope. 
It is because of his sacrifice at Calvary that we are, are able to receive spiritual life. Brother Jonathan was talking about the grace of God this morning. Well, the ultimate expression, I think Brother Jonathan would agree with this, the ultimate expression of God's grace is found in Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the ultimate expression of the grace of God. From his sacrifice, we're able to be here today, and that's why we take the Lord's Supper, to remember, commemorate the sacrificial, the, the sacrificial lamb. Yes, sir. Right. This, this whole thing, they're looking at, a, at something which God knew about and Isaiah's dying, which is finally now being described as holy in Revelation. Right. No good thoughts. So let's keep going here. Good thoughts. So we're familiar with the lamb part, right? We, we, we talk about that a lot. And again, rightfully so. But we need to talk about these other things a little bit. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to, I want to kind of just say some things here, and I'm gonna have, I'll give you a chance to say some things towards the end, but for the next few minutes, I just kind of want to say some things uninterrupted because this is some deep stuff I want to get into now, okay? The root of David is called the root of David in verse 5 also. This is another reference to, like Gary said, to being Jesus being a fulfillment of prophecy. When being sent into the world to be the Lamb of God, Jesus would be an offspring of David, right? He would be an offspring of David. He would be a descendant of David. 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 13 says that the Messiah would establish the throne of David forever. He would reign on the throne of David forever. Jesus right now, who came from the tribe of Judah, reigns on David's throne. And so that right there, the root of David, is a reference to Jesus being an offspring or descendant of David, one who would establish the throne of David forever. Jesus is also called the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. The lamb, interestingly enough, because when you think of a lamb, you think of something, what, really meek and, you know, submissive, uh, Jesus is the lamb, but he's also a lion, a lion and a lamb. That's interesting. The lamb is also called the lion from the tribe of Judah. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 49. The lamb is portrayed as being slain. He's worshiped, and that's important. This is a sign of deity here. We worship God the Father. We're here to worship the Father this morning, but you know where else we're supposed to be here worshiping? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're all part of the Godhead. He's worshipped by those in heaven. Now, if he's worshipped by those in heaven, like God the Father, shouldn't he also be worshipped by those on the earth? Do we not read about him in the Gospels being worshipped by those in, on the earth as well? We certainly do. He's portrayed as the conquering king who leads his people to victory over their enemies. Only he is worthy, 
and able to open the scroll and reveal the outcome to the war, the spiritual war taking place. And so Jesus is called the lamb and he's called the lion. Let's talk a little bit more about those two things, lamb and lion. Go back to verse six, verse six. As the lamb, Jesus portrayed as sitting or standing there. He's standing. He's standing. And he's standing as one who has been what? Slain. That's the idea of he's accomplished a sacrifice. He's been the sacrificial lamb. He's overcome, even though he was the sacrificial lamb. So he's standing. He has been slain. He's got horns and eyes, seven horns. The idea of horns, from what I've studied on this, this is my understanding of it, is strength. Horns represent strength. He has full power, full strength, even though he's died, right? He's, he's fully strong. He's powerful, all-powerful. Seven eyes. What do you think that represents? Seven eyes, seven being complete. He's got seven eyes. Say that again. A witness to himself. Someone else said something else. He can see everything. Omniscience. Because doesn't the text say, if I want to go back there, let me make sure I get this right. It says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out what? All the earth. So he's, he's everywhere. He sees everything. He still sees everything today, right? He still has the seven eyes. Again, none of that is literal. This is, this is all symbolic stuff. Symbolism for strength. Symbolism for omniscience. Symbolism for Jesus being uh, omnipresent and able to see all things because he is God. So the lamb is standing and has been slain. He's got seven horns, seven eyes. He is victorious. He's powerful here. But then he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. The lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies found in Genesis 49. Genesis 49, the line from the tribe of Judah. Did you read the text I asked you to read? Did you read Genesis 49? Did you read Genesis 49, 8 to 12? Those are very important verses to really be able to understand what John is talking about in Revelation. If you don't read and understand Genesis 49, you cannot really appreciate what John is, is saying about Jesus in Revelation. You just can't do it. And so let's talk about it a little bit. Let's talk about it a little bit. The context of the chapter, the context of Genesis 49. Okay, Joseph has made these provisions, right? He's made these provisions to get his people into Egypt because he's second in power in Egypt. He's going to save his family from a time of famine, bringing them into Egypt. They're going to live in Goshen. In Egypt, Jacob is going to reach a point where He's going he's gonna to die. And before he dies, he gathers his sons. He gathers them. Picture this in your mind. They're at his bed, his bedside. And before he dies, he prophesies. The spirit overtakes him, and he prophesies. He predicts things concerning the future of his sons, particularly the future for the descendants of his sons, the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad and Asher, the Holy Spirit tells him, tells Jacob what's going to happen 
to these tribes in the future. Now, out of all the tribes mentioned there in Genesis 49, there is one that stands out. There is one that has preeminence. That is one that is more powerful and more prestigious than the other. It is which tribe? Judah. Judah is the most preeminent of the tribes. It's clear from the language. And so we look at Genesis 49 and verses 8 and 9 when Jacob, this is Jacob speaking to Judah and about Judah's descendants. He says, Judah, your brothers, this is the other tribes, shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him until Shiloh shall to be obedience to all the peoples. He ties his foil to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. That's the prophecies Jacob gives concerning Judah's descendants. And so let's talk about this for the remainder of our time. Let's talk about Judah a little bit. The name Judah. Anybody remember, and I hate to, be, I hate to put you on a spot like this. I should have warned you of this question ahead of time, but, but, but you're, you're good Bible students. You remember the, what the name Judah means? What does the name Judah even mean? Because remember, all these names have meanings, you know, the Hebrew names. So does anybody remember Judah? That's exactly right. Praise, celebrated. That's what the name means. And true to the name. God said that's exactly what was going to happen. Judah, we go back here, Judah was going to be praised. This was going to be a tribe that was praised. It was going to be a tribe where the other nations would bow down and praise it. This would be a victorious tribe. Your hand should be on the neck of your enemies. Victory. Do you remember what Peter said about Jesus back in Acts 2. I'm going to Acts 2. Stay there, Revelation also. But remember when Peter was preaching about Jesus in Acts 2? And I believe it is verse number uh, 34 and 35. 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies or what? A footstool for your feet. See, in ancient times, whenever a king would lead his army out to battle and conquer another king in another kingdom, what they would do if the king was still alive is they would bring the defeated king out. And literally, the victorious king would put his foot on the neck of that king. That was a symbol of what? Victory. Of This man has been defeated. He is under me, literally. That was something they literally did in ancient times. And, and so we see similar language here where it says this tribe would have would be on the neck of its enemies, would be on the neck. It, it, and Jesus epitomized that uh, when he conquered all things. So this would be a victorious 
kingdom. This would be a, a tribe, rather, that would fight and have a lot of resilience in it. You see that in Judges. In Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Remember after the people of Israel conquered the promised land, they still had Canaanites on the borders. Remember that? They still had these Canaanites on the borders. And what did God tell them to do? God told them, make sure you wipe out the rest of these Canaanites. Otherwise, in the future, they will be a thorn in your side. Well, did they listen to God? For the most part, they did not. And guess what happened in time? And we studied this with Samson last week. Those kingdoms kept rising up. And they kept being a thorn in their side, just like God said. Now, when you read Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, not all of the tribes disobeyed God initially when it came to this and got lazy. Judah kept fighting. Judges 1, 1 and 2, Judah kept fighting and they kept experiencing victory. Remember, God promised the tribes, if you keep fighting, I'll give you victory. And Judah kept fighting and they got victory, but they couldn't do it alone. They needed the other tribes to help them. And they did not do that. And so Judah would be a fighting tribe, a tribe of victory. And then it will also be a tribe of royalty, according to verse 8. According to verse 8 again, your father's son shall bow down to you. This will be a, a trial of, royal, of royalty. Kings would come from this tribe. Wasn't that what we saw throughout the Old Testament? When the kingdom divided, the tribe of Judah all, it, it stayed in one family the whole time through the providence of God. And that was David's family. Manasseh, Hezekiah, all those kings through the providence of God, even though most of them were wicked, they stayed in David's family. It was the, it was the northern kingdom of Israel that changed dynasties constantly. They were in constant turmoil, but some kind of way Judah stayed in David's family. That was God's fulfilling his promise. This was going to be a, a, trial, a tribe rather of royalty. Kings would come from this tribe. David, Solomon. Hezekiah, Manasseh, all of these men came from Judah. It would also be strong as a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, he, he has, you have gone up, he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse, rouse him up. This would be a, 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 a tribe so strong they would be like the king, the king of the jungle, which is the lion. It would be like the lion. And we see this, this attitude in many people who came from Judah. We see this in Caleb. Caleb came from Judah. He had been incorporated into the tribe of Judah. And he remember what he said as, a, as an old man? Maybe I shouldn't say that. Well, he, as an older man, when he was about done, I think he was about in his 80s or so. And, and I didn't mean to call you out like that, Dunn. I was trying to get you to help me, but that didn't sound right. But he, he's an older man, and he says, I'm just as strong as I was today as when? As I was when Moses first sent me out. This was a strong man as a lion. He wanted to fight, even though he was 80 years old, he wanted to go fight giants. David, King David. How many victories can we read about David experiencing in the Old Testament? And with Goliath starting out, but as a king, he conquered Enemy after enemy after enemy. No one could stand before David's army. This would be a strong tribe. And the scepter would not depart from it. And that what the text said? 
the scepter would not depart from from Judah. What is a scepter? What is a scepter? When a king holds a scepter, what does that represent? Authority, power. That's right. Royalty, power, royalty, authority. The scepter would never depart from Judah. That symbol of power, authority, royalty, it never would depart. We see that again throughout the history of Judah and the Old Testament. It never departed, did it? And who reigns on the throne of David now as king of kings and lord of lords? Jesus Christ. The scepter hasn't departed and it won't depart. Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh. The word Shiloh there means one who is sent. It means the seed. Remember the third promise to, to Abraham was in your seed. Paul said in Galatians, God said seed, not seeds. Through your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So Shiloh means the seed, one who is sent, the peaceful one also. It's another definition. That's a reference to the Messiah. That's Shiloh. Shiloh was going to come through Judah. He was going to come. He was going to come, and through him the scepter would never depart. Now, to sum up this last part here, because we're running out of time, this language when it comes to wine, grapes, milk, all that stuff in Old Testament language typically just makes reference to prosperity. Prosperity. This last part of this language is indicating, at least in my judgment, that this was going to be a prosperous tribe. And they were very prosperous. Solomon came from Judah, didn't he? Would you say Solomon was a prosperous man? He was a very prosperous man. David, very prosperous man. This would be a, a tribe of prosperity. And this would even continue on through Shiloh. Because through the kingdom of Shiloh, there is the greatest kind of prosperity, which is what? Spiritual prosperity. So Judah would be a, a prosperous tribe. Now here's the point of all of this. Here's the point. Through these prophecies, we need to understand that the reason why Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah in Revelation is because the Holy Spirit is telling John that Jesus is the ultimate expression of the prophecies concerning Judah. He is the ultimate expression of everything we've studied this morning. Jesus came from Judah, number one. He came from Judah, and he is to be praised. Judah would be a tribe that was praised. Jesus is to be praised. He is to be praised at the highest level. We're supposed to be here this morning to praise his glorious name. We praise Jesus. Jesus rules over us, just like Judah would rule over nations. Jesus rules over all people today. He is the king of the world. All people must submit to his authority, must acknowledge him as Lord. If they don't acknowledge him now, they will do it on the judgment day. Jesus rules. Jesus is strong. The tribe of Judah will be a strong tribe. Jesus is strong and mighty. He's all powerful. He says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. He holds the mighty scepter. He continues to hold the mighty scepter. How does he do that? Well, he has a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And who's part of that kingdom? We're part of that kingdom. We're part of the kingdom if we're Christians. And we've been baptized for the remission of our sins. 
We are part of the kingdom of Jesus, and Jesus has the my scepter. He's the king. We follow him. He's the king. And he demands obedience. Remember, concerning this tribe, it says that the father's son shall bow to him. The idea there of the peoples, and let me go back here because I want to make sure I get this right. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Obedience. Brother Jonathan talked about that this morning. John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Jesus demands obedience. The tribe of Judah demanded obedience from the people as they, as they ruled in the kingdom of Israel or in the land of Israel. And Jesus ultimately demands obedience from all people. In fact, no one can be saved unless they submit to Jesus and be obedient to Jesus. And his kingdom prospers. The last part of the language there, the idea of prosperity Guess what? Jesus' kingdom continues to prosper. Someone says, I don't think it's prospering. Look at the world in which we live. Well, my friends, you're looking at things from Earth's perspective. You've got to put on spiritual goggles, and you've got to see that no matter what goes on in this world, the kingdom of God continues to prosper. The gospel continues to be preached. We continue to worship. People continue to be added to the kingdom of God, even in times like this. In fact, maybe even more so. The kingdom of God prospers, and it will not be defeated. It will not be defeated. And so, I mean, I hope that helps a little bit. I mean, that, that, that is what that's all about. That's what that language is all about. That is a fulfillment of Genesis 49. Jesus is the ultimate expression and the ultimate fulfillment of everything Jacob said about the tribe of Judah. So we got a couple of minutes, two or three minutes. I'll give you the time now. Does anyone have any comments, maybe questions? about these first six verses here, because we really covered the first six verses here, pretty much the first half of the chapter, concerning what's going on here in Revelation 5. I'll give you an opportunity. Anybody, please? Feel, Brother Rick, yes, sir. The word until comes, that word until. Now we see here, Shiloh has come. Mm -hmm. That word Yes, Shiloh has come. And it's interesting how Shiloh has come, and the, and, the, and the part of the text says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. If you were a Jew reading this, and you're familiar with Genesis 49, that's comforting because Rome is saying well, the obedience of the peoples is to us. Bow down to Domitian as God. And yet Shiloh says, no, the obedience of the peoples is me. I'm the one ultimately in control, not the Roman emperor. That's comforting to the first century Christians. And I think they would have clearly got that. Uh, anyone else? Please feel free. Anyone else at all? Yes, sir. Yes, he, he can be a lamb and a lion at the same time. Only Jesus could be such a thing. And through that, provide us with all these spiritual blessings. That, 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 it's amazing how God works through Jesus. Uh, anyone else? Any other comment? Yes, sir, Brother Jonathan. Yes, he, he never backed down. You said he was meek and humble. You're right. 
but he also never backed down. He was the, ba the perfect balance, wasn't he? And for a great example of never backing down, read Matthew 23, <laughs> when he put those walls on the Pharisees. Let's stop right there. Good comments, good thoughts, everybody. I hope that helped you. Lord willing, on Wednesday, we're going to finish up Revelation 5, okay? Thank you so much.